Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at myselfland.com. All right, we're in this uh, series on the book of Revelation. And, uh, and uh, in chapters 2 and 3, it took us a little time to get to those chapters because we, we basically took a week each week to look at one of the letters. There's just so much in each of those letters. It's awesome. But now that we've gotten through the letters... Basically, we'll be covering a chapter every week. So last week, we covered chapter four, this vision that John has in the throne room and the one seated on the throne, this glorious throne room. And this is happening right now. God is on his throne and he's sovereign. And we looked at, the, the, uh, at, at how that should be an encouragement to us. And now this weekend, we're going to cover uh, all of chapter five. But chapter five is not a separate uh, piece uh, from chapter four. It's all part of the same vision. John did not have chapter headings in his original writing. Chapter four and five go together. In fact, four, five, six, and seven actually all really go together tightly. And unfortunately, because of chapter divisions, we often split them up in our minds and, uh, and don't look at them as a whole. But four and five, this is just a continuation of last week's vision. John is in the throne room, but now it's going to expand on this throne room. Last week, he just focused on God on his throne and the elders and the creatures. And now we're going to have this expansion of the vision. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see a scroll. And so I'm going to read to you the first five verses, and then we'll begin to work our way through it. And John says this, Then I saw, so he's still in the throne room, the creatures, the 24 elders, everything we looked at last week, we're still there. Then he says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. So the one seat on the throne, remember, it's like a rainbow. It's brilliant. It's glorious. And now he looks at it and, and we see something new is that God on his throne is holding a scroll. Uh, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals, okay? So let's begin to look at this. Uh, first of all, this scroll is written on both sides, okay? And that is an interesting piece of information because in ancient times, scrolls were uh, usually uh, only written on one side. There would have to be a uh, uh, some kind of special reason why you would write on both sides of a scroll. But very specifically, John tells us this is not like a normal scroll where, you just, where it's rolled up and the writing's on the inside. We've got writing on the inside and all over the outside. And John does not specifically tell us why that is important. He doesn't give us that detail. However, there's some guesses we can make. Uh, one likely uh, reason for this, because everything in this vision is supposed to communicate to us something, but one likely reason for this is uh, this is symbolic of the fact that this scroll is complete. There's no space to add anything, okay? There's, there's no changes that are going to be made. What this scroll is, is what it is. Nothing will be changed, nothing will be added. And of course, that matches up with a... With, uh, with, other messages that we find in the book of Revelation, such as Revelation 22, verses 18 to 19. John writes this right at the end of the book. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, the book of Revelation, as we call it. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city. So first of all, this scroll is, is set in stone. No changes will be made. All right? And now, interestingly enough, as we do in every message and as we, as we see in every one of these passages in Revelation, everything, again, that we're seeing in this vision is rooted in the Old Testament, and, uh, and as is this scroll that's written on both sides. So if we go back to Ezekiel, there's two passages I just want to look at briefly, which will give us a little bit of context for this vision in Revelation 5. Ezekiel 2, verses 9 and 10, and Ezekiel is now getting a prophecy for Israel, it's a prophecy of judgment. And, uh, and this is what he sees. And when I looked, Ezekiel says, Behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it, and it had writing on the front and on the back. So again, we can see this parallel. And remembering again that this was not a common thing. Scrolls were not written on the front and on the back. So this is an important piece of information. There's no question that there's a parallel in Revelation 5. It's being tied back to Ezekiel 2, 9 and 10. And it had writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it 
words of lamentation and mourning and woe, just like this, this scroll in Revelation is also filled, as we're going to see as we go through the book of Revelation. It also has many words of judgment and lamentation and woe, all right? But there's one other passage that, is, that John is, is uh, touching back on from the Old Testament. It's Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, okay? And this is at the end of the book of Daniel. It's the last chapter in the book of Daniel. Daniel, of course, is very important prophecy that has huge influence on the book of Revelation, But uh, Daniel prophesied to the end. He had this prophecy of a messianic kingdom, like a mountain that would come and fill the whole earth and it would would exist forever and ever and ever, okay? And then, of course, he he also prophesies many events uh, of a clash between uh, the empires of this world and the empire of this messiah. And at the end of this book, Daniel's wondering, you know, are these prophecies just about to come true? He's probably thinking in his mind, you know, at this point, they're in exile. There's a 70-year exile of the, the Jews in Babylon. And he might be thinking that this messianic kingdom is about to start when the 70 years is over. And so we come to the end of this prophecy, and we don't know, it doesn't say that, but he's probably thinking it's soon. And so right before the end of the book, the angel tells Daniel something to show him that this messianic kingdom part is not just about to happen. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. And he says this in Daniel 12, verse 4. He says this, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. In other words, uh, put a seal. They would seal these scrolls shut, as we're going to see when we come back to Revelation 5, because that's a whole big point of this vision, Revelation 4 and 5. But the angel tells Daniel, I want you to seal up the, the words of this prophecy because the time is not now. It's not coming until the time of the end. It's sealed up. It's not just about to happen. Okay? So now remember that. And remember, John's mind is saturated in the book of Daniel. We see it throughout the book of Revelation. And now under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's seeing another vision. But in this vision, instead of sealing up the prophecy, okay, he is unsealing the prophecy. Okay? And there are many important reasons for that. But Jesus, having come the first time and died and been resurrected, really inaugurated in a general sense, not the specific, specific sense, but really inaugurated in a general sense, the last days. In in a sense, we're already living in the last days now because Jesus has come, okay? Now he's going to come again, but already redemption has happened. Now, we're not in the last, last days, what the Bible talks about in the the day of the Lord, but we are certainly in the last days in the sense that Jesus, the, the plan of redemption is already on. And so we come to Revelation 5, and now instead of the prophecy being sealed up, it's being unsealed, okay? And so we see in verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, I have for most of my life imagined, I have pictured this, these seven seals wrong, okay? And it's not that important for the message today for this chapter, but as we get into chapters 6, 7, and 8, it will matter a little more. So I just want to show you, I want to make sure that, we're, that we are imagining this correctly. So how I've always imagined the scroll and the seven seals is, is this, all right? So uh, we imagine a scroll, obviously it would be bigger, bigger than this little piece of paper. I probably should have brought a better prop, but I've been curling up my message notes this weekend. So um, what I've always imagined is a scroll, so again, bigger than this, but you've got the scroll, and here's where it opens right here. There's the seam. And what you have is seven seals that you can see along the front. So you've got a seal, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. You've got seven seals along the front. Now, in ancient times, they would seal documents and scrolls, you know, important people. There would be hot wax, and they would, you know, they'd put it on the paper, and then they would mark it with their insignia, and then, of course, you couldn't break it. Okay, or at least you weren't supposed to break it unless you had the authority or the, the permission to do so. So I've always imagined this scroll as it's a scroll. You've got seven seals down the front. You can see all seven of the seals. And in o- order to open the scroll, you have to break all seven seals at once to get it to open. Okay, but that, in fact, is not what John is picturing here. What John is picturing is something a little different. And again, it's, it's not super important for today's message. But when we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8, it will be more important. What John is picturing is something they would sometimes do is, so you've got this scroll, it's all the way open, and now it's finished. You've got it written on the front and the back in this case, and now you roll it up a little ways, just a little ways, like you just maybe barely roll it over, let's say like this, 
And now you drop your first seal right there on the edge to hold it like that. Okay, and now you roll it up a little bit more. And then you put a second seal. And then you roll it up a little more. And then you put a third and so on and so forth until you have the last one, the seventh seal. When it's finally closed, you've got a seventh seal on it, on it in this case, okay? So what that means is you would not have looked at all seven of those seals at once in the front. Furthermore, you wouldn't be able to break all seven seals at once in order to open the scroll. What you would do is you would have to break a seal and the scroll would partially open. So the last seal you put on would be the first one you'd have to break. And then you'd, the scroll would open a little ways. And then you'd come to the second seal and you'd have to break that seal and it would open a bit more. And then you have to break the third seal and then it would open a bit more and so on and so forth until you finally get to the last seal, which would have been the first one you put on. But you get to the last one and now it is fully open. Okay? And the point is, there's a process to the seals. It's a time is passing when the seals are being broken. It's not, they're all broken and now the scroll's open. There's this, there's this process of the seals being broken until the contents of the, of the scroll are revealed. Okay? And that will be more important when we get into some of the seals more specifically. Okay? Um, but in the meantime, just setting the, kind of setting the stage here a little bit. Now we come to... Uh, uh, a problem, however, verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So not just anyone can open this scroll. And now this is our first indication that something uh, different is going on here than, because in the Old Testament you have various pro prophecies. I mean, I already showed you one uh, in Ezekiel, but you've got other ones too where you've got prophecies written on scrolls. And it's, it's a prophecy. It's important, but it's, it's a prophecy. So anybody can open it up and read it. And certainly the prophets themselves could open up their prophecies and read them because they're a prophecy. So they're, supposed, they're meant to be read, okay? But here we see now a difference. This scroll is somehow different from the scroll of Daniel or the scroll of Ezekiel's prophecies or even from these visions where these prophets would see scrolls. This scroll is different because it's, it's more, obviously more than just a prophecy. Because not just, it's not meant to just be opened up and read. There's something more to this scroll than just that. And you have to be worthy in order to open it up. Now, nobody is found, right? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Well, verse 3, And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And now, now, so we just stop there for a moment. So John's in this vision, and, uh, and God's showing him this thing. And so in the vision, there's sort of this search. And they're, they're looking. There's mighty angels, and there's archangels, and there's Michael, and there's Gabriel. And then there's, you know, there's the saints. There's Moses and Elijah. And, and, uh, and they look. And, but none of the creatures in heaven can open, are allowed to open this scroll. Now, at this point, okay, it says here, it says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So John now breaks down. So he sees this scroll and God says, okay, who's going to open this scroll? And nobody is able to open the scroll. And at this point, we're all thinking, well, really, what's the big deal? Right? But that's not what John thinks. In fact, actually, that's what a lot of Christians actually think about the book of Revelation in general. Is that not true? A lot of Christians just think, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, is this even an important book? It seems kind of weird. That's not what John thinks, okay? Something's going on when nobody can open the scroll. It says, John begins to weep loudly, okay? And obviously, uh, he's, he's being influenced by the Spirit, no doubt, but his own heart. He understands that this is bigger. And I believe because of where the vision is and what's happening, I believe God wants him to weep. Um, but he weeps. There's something really important about this scroll. Now you say, well, what's so important? I mean, the worst that happens is it doesn't get opened up. Then we just don't know what's going to happen. And this is where you have to understand now, this is why this scroll, you have to understand this scroll is more than just a prophecy. Really what this scroll event uh, uh, represents is the future of human history. It's the future of human history. The whole plan that's going to get us from point A, where we are right now, to point B, which is the consummation of God's kingdom here on earth. See, a lot of people think, for, and I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but a lot of people think 
that Revelation, the book of Revelation is just bad news. And there is a lot of lamentation and woe and judgment in Revelation. But actually, Revelation contains the best news in all of the Bible, which is that at the end of this all, God brings his kingdom physically down to earth, death is defeated, and there's no more crying or sorrow or sadness or hurt anymore. Revelation is actually the best news in the Bible. It should be, I know there are some parts there that we would consider, you know, that a lot of people just consider weird, but as we work through this series, I hope this, this book is supposed to be an encouragement to Christians. Every chapter in it, the purpose of writing was to encourage the original believers and to encourage Christians throughout history. This is, Revelation is actually the best news, okay? So in this scroll is not just a bunch of bad things, it's actually the, the best things, which is death is going to be defeated, Stress and fear and dying and hurt are going to be defeated, okay? But this scroll isn't just a prophecy about those things. This scroll actually represents the future of human history itself so that when it's opened, it's not just a matter of reading what's going to happen, but when it is opened, the things actually happen. Does that make sense? And that's what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. As the seals get broken, it's not just that things are being prophesied, but as the seals get broken, the things on earth are happening. So this scroll is more than just a prophecy. It is, it is the future course of history from point B where A where we are to point B where we want to get, which is the resurrection. And so when nobody is found worthy to open that scroll, John weeps loudly because he's like, there's no hope. There's no hope. We actually can't get to the place we all desperately want to get, which is God on earth finally and no more sin or death or dying or pain anymore. And so he weeps loudly. No one on earth is worthy. Now, the question is why, I mean, no one's worthy. Why doesn't God, God is sitting on his throne holding the scroll. I mean, if anyone is worthy, God is worthy. I mean, is he not holy enough? Well, he's holy. Is he not powerful enough? Well, he is powerful. Uh, I mean, if anybody, because again, to open this scroll, to actually make the events happen, we can see now why not just any human being could do it. The only, you know, person worthy of opening the actual events and making them happen would have to be the owner of the human race and the owner of human history himself, our creator, God. But now we see God holding the scroll on the throne and they look through heaven, they say, no one's worthy. Now, of course, you say, so is this chapter saying God the Father is not worthy? Well, no. That is, that's not the point of this chapter. The point is no creatures or people are found worthy. Certainly God himself is holy. He is sovereign. Uh, he is certainly worthy, but he won't open the scroll. Now the question is, why will he not open the scroll? So nobody else is worthy, but God on his throne won't open it. Why won't God the Father, Yahweh himself, why will he not open the scroll? And the answer is because he has bound, he himself has bound himself that he has said, and what he wants is he wants a human being to rule over his kingdom on earth forever. And there's two passages that are directly referenced here in Revelation 5 that I'm going to go to now in the Old Testament. One is Genesis 49. Genesis 49 verses 9 and 10. Judah, by the way, this is just to give you a little context of Genesis 49, because Revelation 5 refers back to this one. And in this, we, we're, you know, John is building to something. But Genesis chapter 49 is, many, many Christians don't know, this is uh, one of the first messianic prophecies in the Bible, already in Genesis. It's kind of one of these obscure sort of messianic prophecies. And in it, Jacob, uh, you know, has his 12 sons in front of him, and he's prophesying over them just before his death, Okay. And of course, we all know the story of Jacob. It's just amazing to me that he's going to be in heaven someday. He was a messed up dad. He was a messed up man. It really encourages me. And his sons were really messed up too. This was not a perfect family. And if you read Genesis 49, it's very interesting. In fact, some of the prophecies, the blessings he prays over his sons are like, woo. But uh, anyway, he gets to Judah, who himself was not a, a good man. Although at this point in his life, maybe he had repented. I don't know. But anyway, it says this in Genesis 49 verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. Now remember that, that's going to come up in Revelation 5. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter, that's a, you know, the scepter, something that a king, it was a, a sign of a king's authority. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now remember, as he's prophesying even this, think, think about what he's saying. This is almost 
ludicrous to, to say something like this over his son. At this point in time, they're not even a, they're, all they are is a, is a dysfunctional family. It's Jacob, his 12 boys, and a whole bunch of messed up grandkids, okay? That, there is no nation of Israel at this point. There's Jacob's really big, highly dysfunctional family. Now he, pray, now he prophesies over his son Judah, the scepter, and we're talking about a king. Like, don't you have to have a country to be a king? But the scepter will not depart from you, Judah. Okay, interesting. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And now look at this. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, plural. Not only is, is there going to come a time when Judah's lineage will be the lineage of a, of a king, but it won't just be the king over a nation. It will be a, a ruler over many nations. So we have this. Holy Spirit-inspired prophecy, it almost seems random in the middle of Genesis 49, that someday Judah's family is going to bear uh, kings, and kings who will be kings forever, and kings over not just one nation, but many nations, over peoples, okay? So interesting. So already here we see that why God on his throne isn't going to open the scroll, because he inspired Jacob to say this. And he said, uh, someone from Judah's family is going to sit on the throne. Well, God is not from Judah's family. And then, of course, it gets more specific later in the the Old Testament. We have within Judah's family, we get King David, famous King David, who kind of dominates the Old Testament story. And there are many prophecies, and I'll just show you one here, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where now it gets more specific. Not only will this future ruler come from the family of Judah, he will specifically come from the family of David within the family of Judah, all right? And so we see this in uh, Nathan, the prophet Nathan prophesying to David in 2 Samuel 7. He says this to David. David's getting old here. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, now it's God speaking through Nathan, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now, this is interesting. This part of the prophecy is talking about Solomon. And it's something interesting that happens throughout the Old Testament. And I think God still does this sometimes today. I've had experiences like this in my own life where he gives a, a word of, of promise that goes off into the distant future. But then there's a short-term fulfillment that kind of gives you confidence that the long-term fulfillment is going to come. I've had that happen in my own life. I think God still works this way often with people. So he's, telling, he's about to tell David that his, he's going to have a king reign on from his family lineage that is going to reign forever. But kind of the proof of that is in the short term, you're going to have a king who builds a house for my name. That's talking about Solomon, okay? But in the promised, in the promise, there's not a distinction between the two. You'll just see in the promise it vacillates between short term and long term. Anyway, very interesting. But anyway, he shall build a house for my name. So that part is talking about Solomon. But then he says this in the very next line, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, that wasn't, that wasn't Solomon. Solomon didn't live forever, Okay. And then he goes on to say this, I will be to him a father, now he's back on Solomon, and he shall be to me a son. Well, that part is actually both, but then he says this, when he commits iniquity, this part is Solomon, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Now, just a note, that promise is not true today. There's no one on, you know, Israel isn't a kingdom right now. It's a nation. It's got a, it's got a prime minister and it's got parliament, but nobody from the line of David is on the kingdom today. This is something that still has to be in the future. Someone from the line of David is going to rule forever and ever and ever, okay? Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David, Okay. So now we can see in Revelation 5 why nobody can open this scroll. I mean, no human being has the authority or sovereignty to, op- to break these seals and cause events to happen on earth that will bring God's kingdom to earth, okay? God has that authority. God has that holiness, that sovereignty, all of that sort of the stuff that's needed. But he didn't come from David or Judah. And so we can see now why nobody is worthy to do this, of course. But now we keep reading that, right? And now... John's vision is going to be expanded. And of course, now most of you, um, because you've been Christian for a long time, you already know where this is going. The answer has to be Jesus. But don't lose the wonder of it. Don't lose the wonder of it. I mean, that's why, that's why John is having this vision. That's why John's building up to this. 
It's a real problem if you don't have someone who is both God and man. And so we read in Revelation 5, verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we just read uh, Genesis chapter 49. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. He's a descendant of David. Remember 2 Samuel 7. Has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And so now he turns and now Jesus steps into this vision, okay? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Now this is, I just love, and I think God just loves this. Look at the, look at the extremes that Jesus encompasses. On the one hand, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And that's what we would expect in a king. I mean, that's what we love, right? Aslan, the lion. I love that his character, the Jesus character in the Chronicles of Narnia, as on the line is awesome. And here we have Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. And John turns, but he doesn't see a lion. He sees in ancient times the opposite, what they would have considered the opposite of a lion. He's the line of the tribe of Judah. That's not false. That's perfectly 100% true. That's who Jesus is. But when he turns around, he sees a lamb, okay, standing as though it had been slain. Its throat is slit. It's got blood on its throat. So we're, he's expecting to see who's worthy to open this scroll, a lion. That sounds worthy, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's worthy. And he turns around and he sees a lamb who has been slain, as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And one of the things, by the way, one of the things that I just absolutely love about this whole thing, and we'll come back to this in this message a couple of times, but is how... God has never wanted to just rule over us. He's always wanted to rule among and with us. That's why he took on flesh. He doesn't just want to be God dictating to us, although he can do that and he's a good God. So yeah, but that's not what he wants. He always wanted to take on flesh and he wanted to rule with and among us. He wants to be with us. A God-man with us who can empathize with us. And this brings up this other piece, why Jesus is worthy. Look at this, has conquered Nikaio. See, God on his throne actually can't say this. Uh, he's holy and he's awesome, but he hasn't, he hasn't lived a human life with us and overcome. Jesus has done the exact thing he calls us to, which is Nikaio, overcome to the end. Jesus has taken on flesh, he has experienced all of our weaknesses and tiredness, yet without sin, and he has been faithful to death. He is a king worthy of following. Amen? Amen? Because he's not just a king from a distance. He's not just a powerful king. He is a powerful king. I wouldn't want to lose that. He's infinitely powerful, and I love that about God. But he's not just a powerful king. When we approach his throne whether it be now or in the future, physically here on earth, when we approach his throne, we find mercy and grace because he feels with us. He even knows what it's like to die. And he has conquered. And that's why he can take the scroll and open it up. And he's worthy to open up events of judgment because we can trust he will do it in mercy and love because he empathizes with us. He has conquered. Now let's look at this description of the lamb. Two things in here that we'll just look at to understand this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. And again, as you know, in this vision, there's lots of symbolism. Every bit of it is important to communicate to us things about Jesus. But we remember that this isn't physically what Jesus looks like. Okay, I just always say that because people get all kinds of weird ideas about heaven sometimes out of these visions. But obviously, Jesus isn't actually a sheep. He doesn't actually have seven horns or seven eyes. That would be hideous. Okay? But these things all tell us things about his character and who he is. So the seven horns. What does this mean that, that Jesus has, this, the lamb in this vision has seven horns? Okay, And so the first thing you have to understand is this is meant to be. This is an important counterpoint to uh, other horns that we see throughout the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, which are the horns of this thing called the beast. There's throughout the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation, we have this, this the, the Satan's kingdom, which is, the, which is you know, um, represented by a beast empire. And throughout Revelation and Daniel, this beast empire 
is represented as having 10 horns. So I'll just show you a couple of passages and then we'll come back to Jesus, okay? So Daniel chapter seven, verse seven. And Daniel's having a nightmare. It's a vision, it's a nightmare, okay? And he sees these satanic empires, a succession of them coming on the earth. And we'll skip out. We don't have time to get into all the book of Daniel. That'd be interesting on its own right, but it would take us hours and hours. But Daniel 7, verse 7, we get to the fourth empire, this fourth beast empire. And Daniel sees this. After this, I saw in the night visions. Behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. So this, he sees an empire that is terrifyingly strong. It's enslaving. It's crushing the earth. It's some kind of an empire. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It's an angry empire. It's a violent empire. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and those beasts were already bad, and it had 10 horns. Okay, so here we see horns. Skip ahead to verse 24. Daniel explains to us what the horns are. As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So Daniel explains the vision. He says, this terrifying empire is going to rise up. It's going to crush many nations and many peoples on the earth. And then there's 10 horns. This, this, this empire is going to be made up somehow of 10 kings. It's a political reality, some kind of a coalition of nations, 10 nations, 10 kings, something like that. Okay, that's what the horns represent. That same uh, symbolism is picked up in Revelation with the same meaning. So Again, Revelation and Daniel very closely tied together. Revelation is expanding on many of the things that Daniel was shown hundreds of years before. Revelation chapter 17. I can show you other passages. We'll just stick here. Revelation 17, verse 3. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. This is John now. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Let me skip ahead. And once again, just like in Daniel, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. So now you say, well, what does this have to do with the horns on Jesus? Okay. The horns are a direct counterpoint to the, the horns on the beast. That's, and the point is that Jesus' kingdom is a real kingdom with kings and nation. Now, uh, I don't know if the number seven is just, is that supposed to be symbolic? I think because everything in this chapter, everything that has to do with Jesus in Revelation is seven, 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 seven. So I'm not saying that this has to do with there's seven nations in Jesus' kingdom. We know clearly throughout Scripture that Jesus rules over the entire world. When he comes back, he's not going to rule over parts of the world. He's going to rule over the whole thing, and I'm super glad about that. Okay? But the point is, these are the counterpoints to the beast horns. And Jesus' kingdom is not just a spiritual kingdom in our hearts. I know Christians have emphasized that the last couple of centuries, that Jesus' kingdom is in my heart. Now, the element of truth there is Jesus' Holy Spirit is in my heart. And in that sense, hopefully the fruit of the Spirit is in my heart. And in that sense, you know, you can kind of extrapolate that. And in a sense, maybe his kingdom is in our heart. But the Bible is very clear that Jesus' kingdom is a real kingdom. If all we have to look forward to is Jesus living in our hearts, we have nothing to look forward to. What we're looking forward to is an actual kingdom on earth. When Jesus is our king, there's no more sickness or death or dying anymore. And he's in charge and evil is conquered. So the seven horns on, on the lamb's head are representative of the fact that this is a real kingdom he has with real kings under him, real nations. It's a real thing. All right? And so we move on now to the seven eyes. By the way, just a contrast. I love the contrast between Satan's kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. I love the contrast between those two. Satan's kingdom is likened to a beast. It's angry. In Daniel, we see him stomping his feet. He's mad. He's stomping. He's terrifying. And then Jesus' kingdom, and Jesus is actually the one who is all-powerful. And his kingdom, it's likened to a lamb. Which one would you rather live in? In one, one is enslaving people with violence and fear and terror. And in one, you have the most powerful king in, in the world, and yet he rules like a lamb. I think, you know, I think in heaven, I'm going to show you a verse in just a moment. But I think in heaven, it, I, I, I do this almost, we're touching on things now that are beyond us to know, for sure. But I think in heaven, we're going to be astonished by a couple of different things about Jesus. First of all, 
We expect it coming, but we will still be astonished by how powerful and majestic and glorious he is. We will be astonished by that. That one we already all know in our heads. We will be astonished by how glorious he is. But I think there's a second thing on the opposite side of the scale that's going to shock us. I think we're going to be shocked by his leadership style, if I may just put it in modern day terms. Because a lot of us associate power with autocratic dictatorship. That when someone has all kinds of power, they don't lead in terms of, you know, modern terms like team or groups or those sorts of things. They just dictate because they're so powerful. And certainly Jesus has that right. And if he wants to lead that way, he can. But I want to show you a verse here about his heart that makes me think, and along with the fact that his kingdom is likened to a lamb, look at this. Jesus says about his own heart, Matthew eleven twenty nine to 30, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. When in the history of humankind has there ever been a king that brags about being gentle and lowly? Has there ever been a king that bragged about those qualities? I've never read about one. Jesus just goes out and says, he says, you don't even have to speculate about what my heart is like. I'm the most powerful being in the universe. I made the universe. And he says, just so you all know, this is what I love to be. I am gentle and lowly in heart. Mind blow. I think when we see him, we're going to fall on our faces at his throne and just be in absolute utter awe at his glorious majesty and strength. And then he's going to lift us up and he's going to talk to us in ways and use us in ways. And we're going to work together in ways that are going to blow our minds. You want to know my opinion on this? I don't even want to know my own opinion. You just tell me what to do. And just like, no, I actually have fun with this because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And his kingdom is a lamb, not a beast. It's, it's, it's mind-blowing. But anyway, that's what John sees here. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. And now we come to this, these seven eyes. So what are these seven eyes? Now, I know a lot of people have, you know, they're afraid of the book of Revelation because there's so much symbolism. But I want to point out again something here. That so many times, if you're just patient, John explains what the symbolism means. And here's another example. So seven horns with seven eyes, which are, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, if you recall back, I'm not going to take tons of time now because we dealt with this in the first message of the series. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, I showed you how the seven spirits of God in the book of Revelation are part of John's description of the Trinity. You have the one on the throne. You have the seven spirits of God in the, in the, in the, in the welcome, you know, in the greeting in Revelation 1. And then you have Jesus. The only way the seven spirits can be between God the Father and God the Son is if the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinity. So wherever you see in the book of Revelation, and you can read commentaries and stuff, this is not something I'm just making up out of the blue. There's, there's just, there's, Almost no question, the seven spirits in the book of Revelation are meant to be the Holy Spirit. And you say, is the Holy Spirit seven spirits? No, he's not seven different spirits, he's one spirit. But again, in the book of Revelation, seven is this picture of completeness and perfection, and it's tied to everything God. So when we read here that the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, that's literally, it's just saying that the eyes, that's the Holy Spirit. I want you to see how, the Holy Spirit is the eyes of Jesus in this picture. Jesus and the Holy Spirit are inextricably linked. This is the Trinity. On one hand, in, in, John, in the book of Revelation, we will see them separate. God on his throne, Jesus the faithful witness, the seven spirits before the throne of God. At other times, we'll see them like this, where the Holy Spirit is the eyes of Jesus. Literally, they are. You can't separate them. And actually, we see this. This is New Testament theology through and through. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles, Peter, Paul, and, uh, and here we see it with John, they interchangeably use the term Holy Spirit and Spirit of Jesus. They're the same person. The Holy Spirit is so close, closely linked to Jesus that he can be called the Spirit of Jesus. Look at this when, when Luke is the writer in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, verse 6. Paul and Silas are on a missionary trip. And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now look at the very next sentence. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go by Thenia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now is the Spirit of Jesus something different than the Holy Spirit? No, they're the exact same. Luke and the apostles use those terms interchangeably. 
The Holy Spirit is so closely linked to Jesus, you can just call him the spirit of Jesus. And yet somehow they're two different persons at the same time. I don't know. That's the Trinity. But the seven eyes on the lamb, this is the Holy Spirit. And we could go into all kinds of stuff there. But anyway, now verse seven, this lamb, you know, not just filled with the Holy Spirit, that, that makes it seem like a person who's filled with the Holy Spirit, but just inextricably linked with the Holy Spirit. Separate and yet one, this lamb now goes over to the throne and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, this is one of those, there's many climax points in the book of Revelation, but the original readers, see, we, we read Revelation as doom and gloom, but I don't know if you've noticed yet, we're in part 10 of this message on Revelation. Uh, actually, Revelation is an encouragement almost first and foremost and this is another one of those climactic moments when the, those early persecuted Christians in the province of Asia who were the first ones to hear this message, they're supposed to be jumping up and cheering at this moment. The lamb has taken the scroll. Why would they be cheering at that? I'll tell you why they would be cheering. Because again, as I keep telling you, they are under the oppressive cloud of the Roman Empire. The, the greatest empire to that point in that part of the world anyone had ever seen. And they have been persecuted horribly from the times of Nero to what is now probably Emperor Domitian when they're receiving this letter. And horrible persecutions have been done to them. Horrible things are on the horizon from them. And it just really feels like Rome is in charge. There's a lot of evil. And every time you hear news about the emperor, it's another sordid this and another sordid that. It's really, really bad. And sometimes it begins to feel in a world like that, like Satan's kingdom is calling the shots. But here we see the actual reality. When Jesus takes the scroll, he's not just taking a prophecy. He's taking human history into his hands. The future plan of God is not in Satan's hands. It's in Jesus' hand. The lamb is holding the scroll. He is guiding. This scroll determines what's going to happen on earth, the plan and how it's going to roll to the end, which is the good thing, which is God comes to earth and everything is fixed and made better. And this is so important. It's not just so important for them almost 2,000 years ago in the Roman Empire. This is supposed to encourage every Christian throughout history, including us today. Because it's, it's actually really easy to do the same thing as they did back then. It's really easy for us to look at the news today and feel overwhelmed and overcome and scared. And you can read the news, and what do you read? If you read international news on any given day, you might read about Islamic extremism and terrorism and violence and wars and rumors of wars. You might read about the way in China they're using technology increasingly to clamp down on, on Christians in ways that are scary when you think of it, to live in a country like that, and that we have millions of brothers and sisters that are going through that. And you can start to look at this and go, boy, it sure looks like everywhere I look in the news, it looks like Satan is calling the shots. And then you get closer to home, and what do you read in the national news? What do you read of the scandals of prime ministers and presidents? I don't need to get much more specific than that this week, do I? And it just looks like, oh, where is this world going? And then we can read even more locally and we can see this, you know, radical sexual agenda pressuring us in our culture, in our politics, and in our education system. And all of it sure looks like the devil's in control and this whole thing is going south in a hurry. But then we read and we meditate on this vision in Revelation 4 and 5. And we see that actually... All these things were known that they were going to happen. And Jesus right now, the lamb, he's a gentle lamb and yet he is all powerful, is literally holding the future in his hands. And everything is coursing towards its very good ending, which is we win, no more suffering, God on earth, no more evil. And that's supposed to be a tremendous encouragement and it should be an encouragement to us to bring us to an appropriate place of worship before Jesus, which brings us to this final piece. Verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. Here again, symbolism, but if you're patient, it explains the symbolism. Each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And this is amazing. Not only is the lamb holding the future course of the world in his hands, and nothing that happens is going to move the plan of that scroll, which is getting us to God's kingdom on earth. But not only is that the truth, but there are 
I mean, it's symbolism. I don't know if there's actual gold bowls or actual prayers in there. The point is that all of our prayers are so stored up. This is how precious your prayers are to God. That every prayer you have ever prayed is actually stored up in the throne room of God. It is remembered before God constantly. And it is like a sweet smell in the throne room of God. Every prayer you've ever prayed. In fact, there are prayers you prayed when you were four or five that are still before Jesus and before the throne today. And God loves those prayers. And he looks at that prayer when you were four or five and he sees you calling out to God as a young, as a young kid, as a young child. And he still has them there today. And for some of you, that's why he continues to show you mercy, even though you've gone through many hardnesses of heart, because he keeps looking back. He's still got those prayers from when you were a kid in front of him. And he continues to show you mercy and to answer those prayers and to bring you around. That's why he's so merciful. And you, we often have this, you know, we always feel like, uh, you know, well, that was, we have many times we're in our devotional times or whatever, and we're praying. It just feels like the, the prayers didn't go past the ceiling. We were distracted and we were, we were tired and we feel like, and we're not getting an answer sometimes as quickly as we would like. And we feel like my prayer didn't get somewhere. I want you to notice here that God does not say here that he stores the prayers that we felt were powerful. He does not say, and golden bowls full of incense, which are filled with the prayers of the saints that the saints felt were powerful. And somebody says, our human emotions are up and down. He just says, the prayers of the saints. You sent up a prayer to him in a, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of shame, in a moment you were just feeling dry, whatever the case, but you actually took the effort as a child of God to call out to him and say, I need help. Please help me. Please help my son. Please help my marriage, whatever it was. And you just called out to him. You might not even have called it calling out. You might have just whispered it in, in, and felt nothing. And the fact that you called out to God at all, even though your emotions maybe didn't connect to it entirely, the fact that you called out to him at all is so precious to him that that goes up into the throne room and is never forgotten. It is sweet incense in the throne room of God. Your prayers are never wasted and never forgotten, which also means all of your prayers are always answered. They're not always answered immediately in the way we would think. But I want to show you one more passage in Revelation. If we jump to Revelation 8, we're going to see these prayers of the saints again. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Okay? And so the picture we're going to see here now in this next passage is that our prayers are actually accumulating. Every time you call out to God, every time you ask for help, every time you worship or thank him, that our prayers, write something down as a prayer in your journal. These prayers are coming up into the throne room of God. They are not forgotten. That's the picture here. And then there's a sense of they're accumulating. They're accumulating and they're accumulating and they're accumulating and they're accumulating. And there's a point in the future when they accumulate to this point that God has stored up in this moment, that when they accumulate to a certain point, it's like it reaches a tipping point, and God is at that moment going to act, and he's going to say, not that he doesn't act before. I mean, many of our prayers, this is the amazing thing, many of our prayers get answered in the moment. So we might pray for healing now, and that prayer is remembered forever. It stays in the throne room, and he might give us a healing. Or we pray for this, or we pray for that, we pray for financial need, he answers it now. But actually, did you know that when you get those answers, that's not the ultimate answer? Because ultimately, every prayer you've ever prayed is ultimately only answered. What you really want in your heart is never to feel alone again, to be full of joy, to have oneness with God and your loved ones. That can't happen until God brings his kingdom to earth. So even when he is, he's so generous and gracious, he gives us lots of little answers to prayer all the time, and we love to get those answers to prayer in this lifetime. But even when he gives you that answer to prayer, and he helps you in your marriage for a little bit, or he gives you a physical healing or something, ultimately you still die. Ultimately, your marriage will never be perfect. Ultimately, all of those prayers are ultimately answered only when he comes to earth and fixes everything. 
Those are just little foretastes of the real answer. Now think about it. Every one of your prayers for every little thing, every medium thing, every big thing is piling up in heaven and piling up in heaven and piling up in heaven. And eventually it's going to reach a tipping point. And then God takes the bowls and he throws them to earth. And that's what we read about in verse 4. In the smoke of the incense, the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. At some point, God takes those prayers, turns them around, and he says, now it is time to conquer Satan's kingdom and it's time to bring my kingdom to earth. Which means that ultimately all of your prayers get answered. The more that we pray, the more that we seek God, they are held before God, and he is holding them. You know, this brings up one example, and then we're going to stand and we're going to read some worship from Revelation 5 together. But a good example of of sometimes how prayers are stored up and we don't see them being answered right now is this last week at the prayer summit, uh, we prayed again about abortion. And many of the prayer summits that I lead, we pray about abortion. And sometimes I think as Christians, we get weary of praying prayers like that. It just seems like, how's that ever going to change? Like, how's that ever going to change? We pray about it. It's still there. It's get more and more and more. And there's all kinds of other things like it. It's not just abortion, but we pray about it. And we say, Lord, we pray for the moms. We pray for the moms who are going through it, who feel pressured to do it. We say, Lord, we want them to find help. We want them to find healing. We want them to find grace. And we pray for the babies who are killed before they even have a chance to live. And we pray. But it just, in the real world, it seems like the real world, it seems like things don't get better. But what you don't realize is every one of those prayers about things like abortion, when we pray together as a, as a, as a church, as a corporate body together, they are storing up and storing up and storing up. And then at a certain point, God is going to answer them. Plus reward us for bringing those prayers into his presence. So the lamb is holding the scroll and he hears our prayers. I think he's worthy of our worship. Amen. So I'm going to get us all to stand. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship uh, as well right away. But I want us to read the next verses, verses 9 and 10, are just Holy Spirit-inspired words of worship. And I want us to read them as a corporate body together to Jesus who hears our prayers and who holds the future in his hands. Let's read it together. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Just remain standing. Lord Jesus, You truly are worthy. You hold our future in your hands. You are sovereign over all the earth. You're sovereign over the future. Would you forgive us for how quickly we doubt and become afraid? Would you forgive us for how quickly we lose sight of the fact that you are in control? And would you grow us as as a church in our confidence in who you are and what is coming. And from that, Lord, that we would become contagious to spread the good news to everyone around us. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.